0: And on to a very important guest who joins us uh, by phone, Peter Schweitzer, who is the author of the book that's getting all the attention right now and will for some time to come. Clinton Cash, the subtitle, The Untold Story of How and Why Foreign Governments and Businesses Helped Make Bill and Hillary Rich. One might note immediately, Peter Schweitzer, that you have been uh, denounced or at least laughed off by Bill Clinton in a public performance only uh, a few days ago.
1: Uh, yes, uh, the response the response has been quite uh, quite interesting uh, because on the one hand they've sort of insisted that the book uh, is sort of a nothing, it's a dud. Uh, but at the same time they've sort of engaged in uh, uh, you know these attacks on me. I, I think that uh, Lanny Davis, his, his lawyer on C-SPAN yesterday called, compared me to Joe McCarthy, and so you know they, they they say that there's nothing to the book, but their actions speak otherwise, and, and I'm glad to have a vigorous debate with them. Uh, provided we can really focus on these important issues.
0: Well, they have indeed brought out the heavy artillery, but your book is a major uh, cannon shot, uh, uh, really, inevitably, against the Clinton candidacy for the presidency. Uh, the, sub, uh, I, the subtitle, The Untold Story of How and Why Foreign Governments and Businesses Helped Make Bill and Hillary Rich, and another summary uh, sentence, When Bill and Hillary Clinton left the White House, they owed millions in legal debt. Since then, they've earned over hundred and thirty million. Isn't it time we asked how? That's what your book does. How did they earn the hundred and thirty million?
1: Well, I think you know it's it's a story that's a little similar to uh, to other ex-presidents. Bill Clinton, you know, wrote a book, and Hillary Clinton wrote a book, and Bill hit the lecture circuit. But um, what happened is. Um, Hillary Clinton continued to have formal power as a senator, as a very powerful member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and later as Secretary of State. And you can actually see uh, his speaking fees and the flow of funds increased dramatically, particularly from those overseas entities that had business before her at the State Department. Um, And so Bill Clinton's trajectory has taken one far different than any other ex-president. Which is, eight years after leaving office, his speaking fees, particularly overseas, tripled, basically, overnight when she became appointed Secretary of State. Went, from a,
0: mere, to, went from a mere quarter of a million to three quarters of a million per speech.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, you know on average, his speaking <laughs> fee up until that point was a little less than 200000 if you calculate all of them. But after that, he was getting speaking fees for $500,000, $750,000 a pop. Uh, And and I think that's extremely troubling because I don't think he suddenly became more eloquent overnight. Uh, I think it's because those speaking fees are really more influence payments than anything else.
0: This is a book that asks a number of very important questions. One of them, and I read from the flap copy of um, the book itself, the book, again, Clinton Cash by Peter Schweitzer and uh, just published by Harper. Um, And here's one of those questions. How Secretary of State Clinton was involved and allowing the transfer of nearly 50% of U.S. domestic uranium output to the Russian government, benefiting large donors to the Clinton Foundation. You've got a lot of material supporting that claim. Let's hear some of it.
1: Well, you know, the story begins in 2005. Uh, there's a Canadian mining investor, a penny stock investor named Frank Justra, who's friends with Bill Clinton, who's been trying to acquire very lucrative mining concessions in Kazakhstan, which is in Central Asia and is run by uh, President Nazarbayev, a particularly brutal and corrupt dictator. Bill Clinton uh, goes to Kazakhstan with Frank Justra. He praises Nazarbayev's rule, says what a wonderful job that he's doing. He has a press conference with him. There's also, according to Kazakh officials, Hillary Clinton, as a senator at the time, has told Kazakh officials, I will not meet with you uh, unless you grant this uranium concession to this Canadian. Uh, And that's not an idle threat, by the way, because Hillary Clinton at the time is on the subcommittee dealing with nuclear proliferation, and Kazakhstan is getting tens of millions of dollars in U.S. money. Ah, uh, to deal with counterproliferation. Um, days after they leave, uh, he gets those uranium concessions from the uh, Kazakh government. Uh, that you know, that interest or those uranium mines end up in a company called Uranium One, which is based out of Canada. And Uranium One starts acquiring uranium assets in the United States, in Wyoming, and Utah and Texas and Arizona. Now, for some reason, apparently, uh, Frank Justra and eight other people tied up with this small Canadian uranium company all decide it would be a good idea to start giving money to the Clinton Foundation. And they give a combined $145 million to the Clinton Foundation. This is particularly interesting because about this time, the Russian government shows up and says, you know, we want to buy Uranium One. We want to buy those assets in Kazakhstan, and we want the uranium in the United States. The Canadian investors want this because they're offering a 40% premium on the price. The the one rub, of course, is it's got to be approved by the federal government, by a, a number of government agencies, including the State Department, have to sign off on this deal for it to be approved. Hillary Clinton obviously does not disclose this conflict of interest. In fact, the Clintons actually hide some of these contributions. The chairman of the company, a guy named Ian Telfer, donates about $2.5 million. They told President Obama they would disclose all contributors to the foundation. They don't disclose his contribution. She doesn't mention any of this to anybody, and the State Department signs off and approves the Russian acquisition of this uranium. So, as of today... The Russians control 20% of all of our uranium assets, or what is estimated to be about 50% of our uranium production. Hillary Clinton signed off on the deal, and the foundation received $145 million from shareholders who profited enormously from that deal.
0: Um, It's very important to point out that uh, the little bit I just read, that uh, they've earned over $130 million uh, since um, uh, Bill Clinton uh, left the White House. But of course, the Clinton Foundation, of which you've spoken, has received much more than 130 million from people who are all, or companies or organizations or maybe even countries, all of whom are willing uh, to pay uh, for favors to be received.
1: That's right. I mean, they've taken in since 2001 an estimated two billion dollars. That's billion with a B.
0: That's a lot more um, than 130 million.
1: Yeah, it is indeed. And, you know, the foundation is, is kind of an interesting question mark. Um, you know, there's no question it does some good things. I'm not one of these people that says it doesn't do anything good. The problem is it's a very, very unusual and murky charity. And it's not just me saying that. You've got Charity Navigator, which um, evaluates charities regularly. It's very highly regarded. They won't actually rate the Clinton Foundation because of what they call its, quote-unquote, unusual business model. Uh, you have the Better Business Bureau, which has dinged the Clinton Foundation because it has made um, uh, it has a lack of internal controls when it comes to finances. So this is a very um, murky foundation. It's hard to actually figure out what it's doing and to measure its effectiveness because of the way it operates. Um,
0: you've talked so far, I've given you opportunity to talk so far about only one of the many cases you review here, the uranium case. How many separate instances of pay-to-play uh, have you documented in this book?
1: Oh, I you know, I would say it's at least two dozen, at least two dozen. And, and it, it runs the span, everything from uranium to the sale of nuclear technology to India to U.S. policy towards Africa— Um, the decision she made on the Keystone XL pipeline, uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And, you know, part of it was simply uh, follow the money. We followed the money. Who made big payments when? And said, do they have business before the State Department? And we found that, lo and behold, in the vast majority of cases they did, and they got favorable treatment. So it's, in a sense, it's one of the oldest stories in in the political book, follow the money. The difference here, though, Milt, is that unlike a lot of other stories in the past, The book focuses exclusively on foreign money. We've had this national consensus in American politics, left, right, and center, that American politics is a dirty business, but it ought to be played by Americans. So we restrict, you know, you foreign businesses and, and nationals can't contribute to U.S. campaigns. The Clinton Foundation and the ability to pay Bill Clinton speaking fees, inflated speaking fees, is effectively an avenue around it. So this is about foreign money at the highest levels, influencing our decision-making in the United States. And in
0: any uh, of the instances that you specify, uh, has American law been
2: broken?
1: Uh, It's hard for me to know. I'm I'm not an attorney. Um, I think if you look at the recent... Uh, political corruption cases where there have been prosecutions. You've got uh, Governor McDonnell in, in Virginia. You've got Senator Menendez in New Jersey. You've got uh, the governor in Oregon, sober who stepped down. Uh, people from both political parties. Uh, if you look at that evidence, I mean, it's far more compelling in the Clinton case than it was in those. Um, the Clinton camp has kind of tried to push back and say, well, I don't demonstrate a quid pro quo, so there's nothing here. Uh, that's a misnomer. In none of the cases that where there are active prosecutions and convictions that have taken place, there was no quid pro quo demonstrated. Um, that's not a necessity. What you simply need to show is that there's a pattern of behavior and that it has redounded to the benefit of those providing the funds. So, I, what I call for in the book is serious investigation by people with subpoena power, people that can look at emails, um, whether that's through a grand jury, whether that's through a congressional committee or a prosecutor. I'll leave that to lawyers to decide. But I think that what we know now, just based on public information, is compelling enough. That we need to move in that direction. Uh,
0: I'm glad you mentioned the emails. <coughs> Excuse me. Simply and directly, uh, what happened to them? What do you think they were about?
1: Oh well, that's a great question. Um, well, I'm I'm not uh, the most technologically savvy person. Um, you know, in the office, they call me Fred Flintstone as <laughs> as a nickname. So I'm not sure exactly what was done, but but clearly uh, there was this effort made and and perhaps successfully to basically uh, destroy. 30,000 emails uh, that are just gone. And, And the Clinton explanation is that these are private emails. They concern things like family matters or private matters. What's troubling to me is, and I finished the book before the email scandal broke, what's troubling to me is that they categorize correspondence between Bill and Hillary or correspondence involving the Clinton Foundation as private matters. So, what that means in effect that any correspondence that would have contained information or requests from Clinton Foundation donors or business that she might have to contend with involving business donors to the Clinton Foundation, those would have all been erased and And I think based on the pattern of behavior disclosed in this book, that the erasure of this large volume of emails was not about ultimately about Benghazi. It was ultimately not about political things she was doing. It was about this pay-to-play system. So and far, we've talked.
0: So far, we've talked about only one of the particular instances, uh, namely uh, the uranium deal. Uh, give us another one or two, if only more briefly, before we pause for commercials. And then I want to bring my good friend Dick Siccone former political editor and managing editor of the Tribune, into the conversation. But um, what else is on the list that stands out?
1: Well, I'll give you a couple examples from the speaking fees. Uh, again, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton, one of the most important decisions she's making at the State Department is to greenlight the XL Keystone Pipeline, which she does in August of 2011. Um, as she has announced as Secretary of State, and this matter is already at the State Department of approving the Keystone XL Pipeline, Bill Clinton signs a contract to give 10 speeches for about $2 million to an investment firm in Canada. They have never paid him before, ever, to give a speech. Now they suddenly want him to do 10. He does those 10 speeches. He gets paid for the last one. Three months later, Hillary likes the Keystone XL pipeline. The problem is that this Canadian firm is one of the largest shareholders in the Keystone XL pipeline. They had $1.6 billion in equity, and they're also on the hook for $933 million in loans. Another speaking example, Ericsson, the Swedish telecom company. Uh, is in trouble with the State Department 2009, 2010, 2011, because they're selling telecom equipment to Iran and other repressive regimes. And there's all kinds of State Department cables to the Swedish government, all kinds of threats of taking action against Ericsson. In the midst of all this, again, they have never paid for a speech before. Ericsson gives Bill Clinton his biggest single payday ever, $750,000 for a single speech. Nine days after that, The State Department issues a statement from Hillary Clinton saying that they're not going to take further action in this area and they're counting on Erickson and other companies to police themselves. And the examples just go on and on and on.
0: By the way, I uh, can't but wonder uh, what's in the actual Clinton speech. Is it the same speech every time? What did he uh, have to say for seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars?
1: Uh, Well, you know, it varies. Usually it's a variation on a a similar speech where he talks about how the world is coming closer. Occasionally he'll put in a a little section or two, like with Erickson, he probably talked a little bit about telecom. The problem is, is most of the time, these speeches are closed events, so it's impossible to know. But you can look sometimes based on the speech title and see that it's one that he has similarly given over and over again. Uh (laughs)
0: Uh-huh. And... uh probably updated for where necessary, by staff. Uh,
1: Yes, that's exactly right. And there was actually a report that came out uh, just uh, a few days ago um, that uh, there's evidence, I think it was the Washington Post reporting this, that there's evidence now that State Department employees were actually helping Bill Clinton in the preparation of some of his speeches, which certainly would raise serious questions. The fact that he's being paid privately to give those speeches and the State Department is using official government resources to help him prepare those speeches, uh, I think obviously raises some serious questions.
0: Uh, we are about to pause and then directly back to uh, Peter Schweitzer, uh, drawing from his, uh, to say the least, sensational book. Uh, by sensational, I don't mean that pejoratively, but it has created quite a sensation in American political uh, politics, in, in American political parlance. Um, and uh, competition these days. Peter Schweitzer, author of Clinton Cash. And we go directly back to Peter Schweitzer and bringing in uh, Richard Siccone after we pause for this. And with us on the phone is Peter Schweitzer, who is president of the Government Accountability Institute and was for a while a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and was for a while uh, a, a speech writer for the second President Bush. In studio with me, an old friend, Richard Ciccone, uh, who uh, these days is professor of American Studies and Journalism at Notre Dame and was for many years political editor and then managing editor of the Chicago Tribune. And uh, Richard Ciccone, I turn it over to you. Uh,
3: Peter, in your research, uh, were you able to discern whether anyone else sitting on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, or for that matter, any committee that would have dealings with foreign powers uh, received any kind of contributions, campaign, uh, not probably not campaign, it would be illegal, but did any other members of the Senate have foundations or uh, did they in any way get money funneled from foreign governments?
1: Uh, I think that's a great question. Um, no, I think the, the only way that you could uh, potentially say that they're trying to, uh, you know, to benefit indirectly a a politician would be, you know, that foreign firms hire lobbyists. And they will oftentimes hire, you know, congressional staffers who work for a senator as an avenue of getting to them. Um, It's possible, I guess it's conceivable that, you know, some members of the Senate, uh, by some estimates, 30 of them, have family members, immediate family members that are lobbyists. So it's possible that that's an avenue. But, you know, you have a few members of the Senate that have charitable organizations, um, but they they don't operate anywhere near on the scale or size or scope of this. I mean, you're talking about charities that may be taking a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. So this is really unprecedented. um, And that's where I think, honestly, we have to prepare ourselves. If this continues and and is allowed to continue, there's no reason why three years from now we couldn't have a Secretary of, of Defense you know, set up a family foundation, have their spouse do the lecture circuit, uh, and take money from people that had business before the Pentagon. I mean, that that's really where we're headed if this precedent is allowed to continue.
3: Is this foundation a shield enough for the Clintons?
1: Uh, I think you could argue in some respects it is. Um, again, I think the foundation does some good stuff, uh, but it clearly also serves as a vehicle for... Uh, making money, uh, they don't pay themselves salaries. But you know, when Bill is not doing speeches overseas for interested parties, he does a lot of speeches in the United States where he's getting paid money in his pocket to talk about the great work that the foundation does.
0: What's the role uh, so of? Oh, excuse me. What's the role of their daughter in the foundation, if any?
1: Uh, so Chelsea is uh, on the board, um, and she is sort of the heir apparent. Uh, to take it over. And part of their ambitious goal has been to build up an endowment uh, in the future so that they would not have to engage in as much fundraising when perhaps they pass from the scene. But she's intricately involved in it. And I, I found it quite ironic that when the book first leaked to the New York Times, the first person to come out to address the charges, indirectly, of course, was Chelsea Clinton. So clearly they are grooming her to be the next generation to run the foundation and and the projects associated with it.
3: Is there any evidence or do you have any kind of sense as to whether the money from the foundation can be used in any way to enhance her campaign?
1: Uh, That's a great question. I think uh, directly, no. But I think indirectly, it it serves a very important role. I mean, one of the things you see is that a lot of the big political supporters, um, people that are raising money for her now, are people that were involved with the Clinton Foundation. So it allows them to have a hub to maintain and develop those relationships. We also know that the fundraising apparatus... The people who did a lot of the fundraising at the Clinton Foundation while she was Secretary of State were people that worked at the State Department for her a while in in the protocol section. Before that, they raised money for her political campaign, and they will, of course, eventually go back, if they haven't already, to work fundraising for her political campaign. And I think the final role that it plays is a lot of the political strategists or senior brass in the campaign are in one way, directly or indirectly, on the payroll at the Clinton Foundation. So it serves, in a way, as a as a stopgap measure for people that they want to keep in their orbit that, that need to get paid. You put them at the foundation, you park them there for a while, and then when the campaign kicks into high gear, you can switch them over and, and, and get them active in raising money and running the
3: campaign. Is there any way to find out, or do you know? How about how many of these operatives there are and what what kind of cumulative payroll that would be from the foundation?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I mean, if you look at the reporting that the Clinton Foundation does, um, you know, and, and they do basically what's required by the IRS and they don't do much more, it's, it's pretty murky. I mean, they have about 300 employees. Uh, We only know the names of maybe a dozen of them, I would say. Um, And these are people like Bruce Lindsay and others that have been, you know, connected with the Clintons for a long time. Um, So there's a lot of murkiness there and, and difficulty in assessing it. This is one of the things that the Better Business Bureau dinged them on. Uh, the fact that there's not really uh, a board that independently assesses personnel and and how decisions are made at the foundation, and also the fact that there's a lack of transparency about certain elements to it. So it's very difficult to know, and essentially what uh, the Clintons are saying is on questions like this is, you know, trust us. Trust us. Hmm. And, uh, you know, there's no reason for us to disclose these things because we don't want to. Uh,
0: Back to the book. Uh, Chapter 8 is titled, Uh, Warlord economics. The Clintons do Africa. Uh, How did they do Africa?
1: Well, you know, Africa, of course, is a troubled continent in a lot of ways. Uh, You know, uh, lots of warfare, uh, lots of conflict. Um, It's also got mineral wealth in a lot of cases. And when you look at who in Africa is working with the Clinton Foundation and the amounts of money that they are donating to the Clinton Foundation, it's got to be troubling to anybody. I don't care if you're a conservative, liberal... A political centrist, it's very troubling. I mean, to give you just a couple of examples, um, one of the biggest contributors is something called the London Group, which has pledged $100 million to the Clinton Foundation. They did that shortly after Hillary became Secretary of State. And what the London Group um, has is mining operations in places like southern Sudan, which has been wracked with civil war, breakaway regions in Ethiopia. But their most lucrative... Mining concession is a very troubled, war-torn country called the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, and their most lucrative concession came about because of a deal that they struck with a warlord named Kabila. Uh, they gave him $50 million, uh, and in exchange he said, when I take power, I will give you a long-lasting, lucrative mining concession so you can you know, make all this money in my country, and that's what they did. Uh, another example of a big contributor is uh, a guy named Gilbert Chagori. He's of Lebanese ancestry, but he grew up and lives in Nigeria. Nigeria, of course, very uh, corrupt country in a lot of levels. Uh, but Gilbert Chagori is a longtime, close and intimate friend with the Clintons. He went to Bill Clinton's 60th birthday party. He's pledged a billion dollars to the Clinton Global Initiative. He's sponsored speeches for Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. Gilbert Chagori um, has been wrapped up in all kinds of troublesome behavior. Uh, he was convicted uh, in Geneva, Switzerland um, for aiding and abetting a criminal enterprise and for money laundering because he helped the Nigerian dictator General Abacha literally smuggle billions of dollars of aid dollars in government money out of the country and put them in Swiss bank accounts. Uh, he's somebody that was named in a Department of Justice bribery uh, probe. Uh, in 2010. Uh, And yet, this is somebody who the Clintons are very close and very intimate with. And, of course, he is tied up with the governing apparatus in Nigeria, which has all kinds of favors that it wanted and got from Hillary Clinton while she was Secretary of State.
0: You have invented a term descriptive of something that you take to be rather uh, typical of their operations. That term is the Clinton blur, B-L-U-R. We're about to pause Uh, After that, uh, do please explain to us what the Clinton Blur is and how it fits into the system that we've been talking about so far. Directly back to Peter Schweitzer and to Richard Saccone after this. And back to Peter Schweitzer, author of Clinton Cash, in just a moment. During that moment, let me just make clear that our lines are open. If you want to phone in a question or comment, the number, of course, is 847-475-1590. 847-475-1590. And if you'd rather email us, the email is Milt, M-I-L-T, at at 1590wcgo.com. Milt at 1590wcgo.com. And directly back then to Peter Schweitzer. So what is the Clinton Blur?
1: The Clinton blur is this tendency that the Clintons have to wear multiple hats at the same time, blurring lines that are very very important to maintain from the standpoint of combating ethics and uh, you know unethical behavior and corruption. So for example, if you look at Haiti, I've got a chapter on the relief uh, effort in Haiti. When Bill Clinton was there, he was there as the head of the Clinton Foundation as the head of the uh, International Haitian Recovery Commission, as the U.N. Special Envoy, as the spouse to Hillary Clinton, and as a businessman uh, who had people that were trying to get business deals done in Haiti with the Haitian government. And, you know, as The Economist put it, um, the magazine The Economist put it, it's hard to know which hat he's wearing when. And I think that's part of the brilliance, but also the troubling aspect of this. So when you go in and see a foreign government official, You don't know if he's asking you about a deal or a question or if he's pushing an agenda point, if he's doing that because he's got money involved in the deal, he's got a friend with money involved in the deal, it's just something that involves the Clinton Foundation. You you just don't know. And you saw the same thing with Hillary Clinton at the State Department, where they made various aggressive use of so-called SGE status for employees. This is something called the special government employee status that was originally designed that if, say, NASA wanted to get help from an astrophysicist at at an American university and the astrophysicist didn't want to give up his, his, his tenured position but wanted to work for NASA for three months, they would give him SGE status so he could maintain his previous job at the university while he was working for NASA. Well, the Clintons took that law and abused it so that political operatives uh, like Huma Abedin, et cetera, worked literally for the State Department while at the same time they were on the payroll of the Clinton Foundation or a consulting firm with with which the Clintons were involved. And so there's this blurring of these lines, which I think raises huge flags when it comes to ethics and and, uh, dealing with corruption.
0: Uh, Let's listen for just a moment to something they were saying about your book and about you on the Morning Joe program at MSNBC.
2: We, are, we were all talking yesterday about how Hillary needs to get out and talk. I think somebody said yesterday that she's had seven questions asked of her during this campaign and she's answered two. Right. Uh, and just trying to go after the author. I mean, you can. I mean, Peter Schweitzer, right now, yeah. I mean, he could go off to Vegas and go on an eight-year bender and it wouldn't change the fact that it's the New York Times now that Howard Dean and James Carville and Clinton, Inc. are calling right-wing operatives. So Washington Post, I mean, it was the Post that came up with the 1,100 donors that weren't disclosed. Right. It was the New York Times that's come up with one story after another on this. It was the Boston Globe that came up with the story. Yeah, and there are these, you know, really the He's linked to the Kochs. He's... You know, yeah. so, and, the, and the, the truth the, is yeah. his, his book uh, is a, a series of, of uh, sort of correspondences that this happened and this money came in. Right. He's actually been pretty modest in his claims about right. how much he has, which I actually kind of respect. Um, he hasn't proven a lot about actual influence peddling, um, uh, but the book you know stands on its own right. for some of those things, that, the, the lines that it draws between the money and the pot.
0: Who are those people do you do you know them Peter
2: <laughs> I don't
1: know but you know I'm pretty tired from this book here so I don't know going on a bender in Vegas sounds like it might be a pretty a pretty yeah. prospect <laughs> um, no I think I think uh, Joe Scarborough there makes a very very important point um, you know this book was leaked early uh, by the Clinton campaign and they attacked me as sort of a you know a right-wing hitman and and certainly I'm conservative although I will say that in my my books I've gone after both Republicans and Democrats, um, you know, in previous books. And you could ask John Boehner about me, uh, the Speaker of the House, Republican, and you probably wouldn't get a kind word. So um, I'm, I'm an equal opportunity uh, offender in that respect. But the larger point he makes is absolutely true. When, when, when I finish this book, I thought what we had was so compelling and so troubling that I went to the top investigative reporters at the New York Times, Washington Post, and ABC. And and I also went to the news division at Fox News where I knew some people. And I said, look, I found some very compelling things. My research team has found some very interesting stuff. You ought to look into this. And being the good reporters that they are, they went out and retraced our steps and confirmed what we found. So as much as the Clintons have tried to say, oh, this is sort of a vast right-wing conspiracy, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, ABC News don't really fit well into a vast right-wing conspiracy. It would be awkward, to say the least. So I think they're exactly right. The story has taken on this momentum uh, that goes well beyond the book. And, and frankly, for me as an author, that's, that's very humbling and encouraging, for, because for me it's really about the story. It's about getting this material out and getting people to think about this stuff and see what is happening at the highest levels of our
0: government. Uh, I read uh, the first few paragraphs of a story in the Washington Examiner this very day. Uh, A number of foreign donors pledged new support for Clinton Foundation efforts during a conference in Marrakesh last week, raising questions about the strength of Hillary Clinton's campaign promise to cut off Foreign donations to her family philanthropy while she runs for president. The Kingdom of Morocco was among the foreign entities that committed to new projects at the Clinton Global Initiative event, which drew dozens of big ticket donors to the country for a three day meeting headlined by Bill Clinton. Hillary was slated to attend the Marrakesh conference before her name was quietly removed from the schedule earlier this year amid criticism of the foundation's foreign activities in all 34 U.S.-based and foreign entities, offered their support to Clinton Global Initiative Projects at the Marrakesh Summit. Your first thought and reaction to that?
1: Well, I mean, this is kind of how they, uh, how they have continued to operate. And I think they basically have said, you know, we don't care about the criticisms. We don't care about the in, in, you know the, the appearance of impropriety. We don't care about concerns that have been raised about this. We're going to press ahead. And, you know, to me, that what's, what's troubling has been the notion that they will not even entertain the idea that there are problems with the way in which they have conducted things. For example, the whole issue of transparency. Her condition for taking the job from President-elect Obama was President Obama's insistence that they disclose all donors to the Clinton Foundation. It was a very simple, clear-cut request. And the Clintons signed their name to that agreement, and that agreement was struck. Well, as I pointed out in the book and has now been confirmed by both the Wall Street Journal and New York Times, they started violating that agreement almost immediately. There there were major multi-million dollar donors, including the chairman of this Russian-owned uranium company, that were donating millions of dollars that were never disclosed. So in effect, they were telling President Obama, for whom she worked, we are not taking seriously our commitment to you. Uh, uh, that, to me, would be a major, major issue or problem. But the Clintons are not interested in addressing it. They just want to continue to move on.
0: I, would, I offer to both Bill Schweitzer and to Dick Saccone, uh this email for your uh, r- responsive comments, of course. Does Mr. Schweitzer suggest that the Clintons will be beholden to foreign interests and foreign governments? Does that necessarily mean that they will not act in our own country's best interest? I believe that they will simply make certain that their partners profit to the maximum of their ability, but will not destroy the country's sovereignty. Don't politicians already do the same for American corporations by virtue of their relationship with lobbyists? Um, So asks Margaret of Mount Prospect. Well phrased. Uh, Your response?
1: Well, my response is I think there's a huge difference between uh, what we see in American politics, politicians like to call it constituent services when they do favors for U.S. corporations, which I am highly critical of. It's, it's crony capitalism, and I think it's a huge problem, and I've written books on that subject. But there's a huge difference between that and foreign companies and foreign governments. Mm-hmm. Huge difference. And, and you know, I have a chapter in the book on Columbia, events in Columbia, where you literally have a circumstance where Hillary Clinton is secretary of state and Bill Clinton is a former president have received money from Canadian firms that are competing for contracts from the Colombian government against American firms. And the Clintons apparently side with the Canadian firms because they uh, gave them money. And so you have this strange situation where American firms were actually losing out because the American Secretary of State was helping foreign competitors. Um, that, to me, is a, is a huge problem. And I think if the, if the uh, writer of the email, a very, very articulate email, but if they are not thinking through the consequences that there is a difference between foreign interest and domestic interest, then you know why have national borders? Why have an independent federal government? You have to believe and assume that our national leaders are going to try to do what's best for our country. If they are financially entangled with foreign entities, I just think it's impossible for them to untangle themselves enough from to, sufficiently uh, to do the job accordingly.
0: Richard Ciccone, your response to the same.
3: Well, you know, I was going to ask earlier uh, about the uh, Kazakh uranium and the Canadian uh, company that uh, took it and then the uh, sale back to the Russians. Don't we have any kind of uh, laws or regulations about selling American uh, uranium? Of all things, I mean, I don't know if we're talking about something that can be converted to weapon grade, but that's been, you know, for fifteen years. That's all we talk about: centrifuges and uranium in the Middle East. Uh, How is it possible we can allow a, a Russia to purchase uranium mined in the United States?
1: Well, I think that's a great question. Um, And yeah, the uranium that they purchased can indeed be converted uh, into weapons. And one of the things that the New York Times did, I would encourage uh, audience members, uh, they could look at it, a 4,000-word piece that the New York Times did um, based on the book and the material in the book. What they revealed was when the Russian government purchased uranium one, one of the agreements was they were not going to export the uranium out of the United States. The New York Times uncovered the fact that it is actually being exported out of the United States, and we don't actually know where it's going. They've actually exported yellow cake, which um, people who follow these issues may may recollect yellow cake is is one of these ingredients that goes into developing nuclear weapons. Yellow cake has actually been exported out of the United States by Uranium-1, and we're not even quite sure where it's ending up. So this is a fundamentally important national security issue. The purchase of Uranium-1 by the Russian government was predicated on two commitments. One was that they would not export the Uranium. Number two, uh, this, this federal government review would allow them and allowed them to take 52% of the company, a majority ownership. They agreed that they were not going to seek to own the country company outright, which, of course, is what they did two years later. So they violated both of those agreements. It's important to recognize that this agreement came down during the heart of the Russian reset. So the political mood in the Obama administration was very much that, well, you know, we need to try to cooperate with the Russian government. We need to try to show them how friendly we are. At the center of that reset, of course, was was Hillary Clinton. She was the one conducting all the negotiations, all the discussions with the Russians on everything from nuclear weapons control to civilian nuclear cooperation. Uh, but she stands out on this deal for two reasons. Number one, 145 million dollars that her family collected from shareholders that stood to benefit from this, and number two, she was the only official that looked at this who had a history of opposing precisely these kinds of deals.
0: Have she you has ever a history? Have but, you ever talked with people at the State Department about their uh, their attitude towards their former boss?
1: Yes. I, uh, I have talked to some people off the record, um, and I think one of the things that you see at the State Department is there's a very big divide. Um, career State Department officers, a lot of them were basically excluded um, from uh, a lot of the decisions that were made at the State Department. Um, and there's a process by which this was done uh, where she gave certain status to certain initiatives, which essentially removed Foreign Service officers from being directly involved. So, There's a lot of division at the State Department. There's also people, of course, that are very loyal to her, Uh, people that have been with the Clintons for a long time, have been through a lot of the wars and battles, and I think will continue to be loyal to her.
0: And we will be right back after a quick pause for these words. And we return directly to Peter Schweitzer and in studio to Richard Ciccone. Jennifer in Naperville sends this plaintive email. When can all the rightists take a break from their mania? and leave the Clintons alone. They have done more for the poor people of this country than any family in politics. Well, Peter Schweitzer.
1: Well, I I happen to subscribe to the belief that I don't think any of our national leaders should be left alone, (laughs) whether they're Republican, Democrat, conservative, uh, liberal, or mainline. I think part of the thing we need to do is recognize the adage, which is true, about the corruptive uh, influence of power. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, transparency is important. Accountability is important. And, you know, if we're not troubled by the fact that individuals who are in public service are getting rich while they are in public service, um, you know, I think we might as well just pack our bags and, and, and give up the American system and the American way of life, because that runs antithetical. That's one of the things that separates us from so many of the sort of corrupt uh, kleptocratic, uh, regimes, uh, around the world where people want power because they get the power and they can also stash away a lot of money. And so I think it's important to hold everybody accountable. And, and, you know, I'm doing a research project right now, uh, on Jeb Bush, uh, and his tenure as governor of Florida. And, uh, you know, the, the same thing, follow the money and see if self-enrichment is taking place. Are you finding think- anything
0: to worry about in that instance?
1: I, you know, some, I'll, I'll say at this point we're four months in. We're expecting to have it in September. You know, we, we are still at it because we found some interesting things. I'll say that, and uh, certainly we can share that with you, uh, Milt, and, and everybody else what our findings are in September. Um, but I, I think this, this, this blindness that anybody has, I mean, I'm somebody that, that has worked in politics uh, to some extent in, in limited ways. Anybody who is blind to the idea that somebody on their side can do this Uh, to me is very troubling. I mean, I think we all need to take our blinders off and not only hold the other guy, uh, you know, accountable, but hold our own guys as well accountable for this kind of behavior.
0: I would expect, Richard, that you do not disagree.
3: No, I don't disagree at all. And I imagine Jennifer from Naperville is probably a younger person. Uh, I would just say, Uh, Perhaps you ought to go back and read about what Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Lyndon Baines Johnson did for the poor people in this country. Uh, Social Security and Medicare, uh, along with a host of other acts, uh, weren't exactly uh, the kinds of legislation that Bill Clinton passed.
0: Uh, Let me read you another uh, email that's come in. Uh, Mr. Schweitzer seems to point at wrongdoing on the part of Bill Clinton. Is it Clinton's fault? that he is in high demand as a speaker. We are now in the digital age. Mass marketing has the internet as a tool to reach millions or more. Unfortunately for past presidents, they didn't have this luxury. Why fault Clinton for being in the right place at the right time?
1: Well, my question again would be, why from 2008 to 2009 did his speaking fees, his big payday speaking fees, Increased dramatically. I mean, think about the statistic for a minute. Bill Clinton, his entire speaking career, has given 13 speeches for which he was paid $500,000 or more. 13 speeches. Only two of them occurred while his wife was not Secretary of State. I don't think that's because of digital marketing. I don't think that's because he had a certain, you know, gap from 2009 to 2012 where he was suddenly three times more articulate than he was before you know come on let's let's not be naive about this now you can say i don't think that money influenced them i think it's coincidence that the people that paid that money got favorable treatment that's fine but i think the fiction that this is just a response of the of the speakers market is is just absurd i think the the, the realities are anybody domestic and foreign is dying to influence our decision-makers, especially if the government has the ability to do something for them or do something to them. So let's not pretend that that doesn't happen. Then the question becomes, how do our political figures handle those opportunities? Do they cash in, and what do their spouses or family members do that have political power? Do they recuse themselves, or do they take beneficial actions for those who are giving money to their spouses? These are all very, I think, basic and clean questions that we need to ask.
3: Of those 11 speeches, how many of them were uh, paid for by foreign entities?
1: Uh, Almost all of them. Almost all of them. I I don't have the exact number here, but the big paydays, he gave uh, two speeches in Nigeria for $700,000 apiece. Uh, he he got those in 2010, I believe. Again, he had never been paid to speak in Nigeria before. Uh, the relevant factor there is that as Secretary of State, uh, Hillary Clinton Clinton is required to grant a waiver to a country like Nigeria that receives U.S. foreign aid but does not have transparency in its budgeting process. This was a reform that was put in to deal with you know disappearing U.S. foreign aid. So, again, why did a businessman closely tied to President Goodluck Jonathan of Nigeria suddenly decide out of the blue to pay Bill Clinton $1.4 million for two speeches when he had never decided to pay him before? You know, you can say it's coincidence. You can say it's just good marketing. I'm not that naive.
0: Uh, Peter, as we close, uh, and we've just got about two or three minutes left, uh, I note that you are the co-founder and president of the government Accountability Institute, where they're doing very active research of this sort. And uh, I've noted earlier that you were a speechwriter, for a while at least, uh, in the White House of George W. Bush. But lots of our listeners um, don't know much about your background before that. Can you give us a very quick overview of who you are and how you became who you are?
1: Uh, well, sure. Uh, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, uh, went to George Washington University as an undergraduate, went to Oxford uh, where I received my master's degree, uh, worked as a consultant with NBC News for a little bit. Uh, became a fellow at the Hoover Institution out at Stanford University, was there for 15 years, uh, then decided to start this investigative unit, the Government Accountability Institute. Uh, We are based out of Florida. Uh, We're purposely not in Washington, D.C., because if we're going to investigate cronyism and corruption, I don't want us to be developing social ties with those we are investigating. And uh, we have gone after people from both sides of the aisle. We've been criticized by people from both sides of the aisle. And we are interested in combating corruption and crony capitalism, which is rampant, um, and, and I think will ultimately be the demise of our country if we don't get a handle on it and deal with it.
0: Well, very impressive. Um, the book is very impressive, as is the career that you've just summarized. And the book, in hand, and it's widely uh, uh, being sold and read all over the country, is titled Clinton Cash, the untold story of how and why foreign governments and businesses helped make Bill and Hillary rich. I thank you, Peter, so much for joining us today.
1: It's always a pleasure to be on with you. Thanks, Mill.
0: Thank you. And Richard, we only do have about a minute left. Any further wise thoughts from one of the wisest men I know?
3: Well, I would have asked Peter this question, but obviously he sort of uh, said what he hoped the impact of his book would be, Uh, and uh, I think the the dispatch you read from uh, Morocco, uh, he pointed out just shows they continue to be arrogant, and I just wonder what kind of impact this will have in the presidential election or primary season. From a family who can stand up and tell the American public, I never had sex with that woman, and see their favorability rating go up.
0: Uh, one of my favorite little bits of uh, political trivia. I've got uh, 20 seconds. Uh, who was sitting next to him when he said that to the, pr- the pr- reporters? I've never had sex with that woman. I don't recall. Yassir Arafat. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> was at the White House. <laughs> we are out of all time. Thanks to all for listening.